Well, hey, good morning, Harvest. How are we doing? Good. Can I just say it's glad to be back? Oh, thank you. I'm so thankful to be here. Glad to uh, be back. Um, for those of you who don't know, my, uh, the elders graciously gave my family and I a sabbatical over the summer, and I just want to start by thanking them. And I would say that after 11 years of ministry here, it was a rest and break that was needed and that was good and was uh, refreshing. But I just would want to say that um, one of the things that has not changed is my wife and I's commitment to this place, to all of you. Uh, we love this church and are so thankful to serve here and are just so excited for the next season that God has for us here at this church. So thank you for all that we're praying for our family. It was a really, really good time. But that's about all I want to talk about me right now. Do me a favor. Open your Bibles to Isaiah 44. We're going to be in Isaiah 44 this morning, and uh, we are um, starting a new series today, and I'm so excited about it. It's called Christian Worldview. And um, I, I think it's not a coincidence. I think it's providential, I would say, that we are starting this series uh, in a very unique moment in our country as uh, we're remembering the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. And I would say if you were old enough uh, to be alive 20 years ago when the planes flew into the World Trade Center, if you were old enough to remember that, like we all have a 9-11 story, don't we? Like I know for me, my 9-11 story was I was in 10th grade English class and we were about 70% of the way through the class and I remember being startled as another teacher burst the door open and said, you have to turn the TV on. Uh, a plane just flew into to a building in New York. And this was right at Grand Haven High School down the road and I remember being like, well, that's weird. It seems like the buildings are big. They seem hard to miss. Like, how did that happen, right? Like, we thought it was an accident that something just went wrong, and we turned the TV on right as the second plane hit the second tower. And it was very, very clear that this was coordinated and that we were under attack. And I remember just sitting in stunned silence, even as a 10th grader, watching what was happening. And then the bell rang, so we switched classes. And in between classes, there was just this awkward and um, like bone-chilling silence, even amongst high schoolers. And we all just kind of got our stuff and went to our next class. And then I went to 10th grade Spanish class and the TV was already on and we didn't do anything and we were just watching what was unfolding. And about a third of the way through Spanish class, all of a sudden the intercom went off in our room and it said, would Calvin Wisen, right? Because no one can say it was Sen, right? Would Calvin Wisen please report to the principal's office? And that really made me scared because this was a, a time in my life where my dad would often travel and fly for work. And I'm like, why am I getting called to the principal's office right now? And I'm like, my dad was there this morning when I got up. And so I'm almost positive he wasn't traveling to New York. But the only reason I'd be getting called out of my class right now, in my mind just went to, there's someone I know that was on one of those planes. And I'm like, was it an uncle? Was it a cousin? Was it a family friend? Like, why am I getting called out right now? And I walked to the principal's office and then I remember my dad was there and he was talking to the principal and the principal was kind of frustrated with my dad. And I remember hearing the principal say, I really don't think you need to take your son out of school. I really don't think we're in danger. I don't think he needs to leave school right now. And I remember my dad saying, I'm not taking him out of school because I'm scared for his safety. He said, what's happening right now is going to shape our country for the majority of my son's life potentially, and I want my son to be at home so I can sit and watch it with him. 
And so like, I was like, wow, I get to go home. I don't have to be at school anymore. That's kind of cool. So I was kind of smiling to my friends and waving as I got to go home. They weren't thrilled about that. But um, I remember we drove home. We only lived like two or three minutes away from the school. And when I got there, my cousin was already there who worked with my dad. And then um, Steve Bolig, who many of you may know, part of our church, he was there. And we just sat for like three hours and just watched. And we watched the towers collapse. And there was just this feeling like things are not going to be the same after today, right? Like things are going to change. I don't know how, I don't know what it's going to look like, but normal is not going to be normal anymore. Everything is changing. And I think it's interesting that we celebrate this anniversary in a moment where I would say the second closest event that I've lived through where you get this same type of feeling like things will not be the same we're living through right now with the pandemic that we're in, right? Like there have been so many times over the course of the year or the past 18 months where I've had that same feeling like things are not going to return to normal. Things are changing. And as I think about my heart and my life and our church, I'm like, some things have to change. And what has just really um, weighed heavily on me over my sabbatical and just over this last year is that within the church, within the people of God, there has to be a renewed commitment to God himself, to the word of God, and to loving one another amongst the church, amen? Okay, that was a little lame, and I know I haven't been here for a while, so I'm gonna give you another try, because that was a really good one. It needs a better amen than that. Let's try that again. Amongst the people of God, we are living in a time right now where there has to be a renewed commitment to God himself, to God's word, and to one another, amen? Amen. Well, that's what we're getting after this fall. And what we're doing is, is we're going to anchor ourselves to the fundamentals of what does it mean to be a Christian? What are the lenses that we view our world through as followers of Jesus Christ? How are we shaped and impacted and formed by scripture and by our relationship with God? And um, what I get to do today, well, first of all, before I say that, let me just say this. Church, give me your eyes for a second. Here's what I need from you, and I'm gonna ask this of you. Um, this series, I believe, will be the most impactful series we've ever done as a church. If not the, definitely one of the most. And the way this series is gonna work, we're gonna spend about the first six weeks just building out the fundamentals, and then we're gonna get to a lot of the practicals. And so every week is going to build on each other. So what I need from you is if you're part of our church, I need you to be committed to get to church to, to go to small group where we're gonna work a lot of this stuff off practically. And if you have to miss a weekend through illness or through traveling or whatever, um, get online and watch the message because this is all going to build on one another, but it's going to be a very important season for us as a church. So if you're uh, with me, say I'm with you. Okay, good. And um, what we're doing is, is we're gonna start at the central point of all of scripture and all of reality right now. This week, we're going to look at what is the Christian worldview regarding God himself? And I would just say that this is uh, an impossible task. And unfortunately, I am not able to say everything there is to say about God in one message. In fact, I could preach for the rest of my life just on who God is, and I would only be scratching the surface. But what Isaiah 44 is going to do is he's going to give us a great framework. And what I love about Isaiah is we're not going to hear from Isaiah about God. We're going to hear from God talking about who God is. And just a little background so we're all on the same page. Um, Isaiah was a prophet to the nation of Judah, and Judah was living in a time of prosperity. 
So they were free, they were wealthy, everything was going well, um, but they had a spiritual problem. They had grown weary of following God. So even though everything on the outside is going well, they didn't wanna follow the law anymore. They thought that was too restrictive. They wanted to do their own thing and they were being influenced by pagan idolatry. So we live in a secular society and what often influences the church is a secular worldview. It wasn't like that for Israel. Then the nation of Judah, they were being influenced by a pagan idolatry, which meant there were thousands of different gods that all had their own arena and you would worship these gods and false idols. They were falling into idolatry. The other major issue that Judah had was they had an Assyrian problem. And there was this new world power that was raising up and they um, were called the Assyrians and their capital was Babylon and they had strong horses, they had huge armies and they were not being defeated and they were taking land like it was their job and they were coming towards Judah and captivity was coming. So even though things were good on the outside, things were about to get really, really difficult for Judah. But God's gonna speak to his people in Isaiah 44. Look what he says. He says this. He says, thus says the Lord, King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare it and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Is there no rock? I know not any. Okay, and so here's what we're gonna do this morning. We're gonna see eight things God says about himself that he is supreme over in Isaiah 44. God is going to talk a lot about himself and we're going to see his supremacy. Here's the first thing you need to see about God in this text, that God is supreme in existence. God is supreme in existence. Look at the phrase he uses in verse six. He says, I am the first and the last. I am the first and the last. You see what God's saying there? He's saying that before there was anything, there was me. And after everything fades away, I will still be. He says, I am supreme over time and space and reality. And this is like the type of thing that we as created beings, if we think about it too hard, our minds explode, right? Like, like, like it's what uh, God says about himself in Genesis 1. In the beginning, there was God. Well, how can God be in the beginning? How can nothing have created God? Because he is the one who breathed time and reality into being. He is greater than anything that we can even comprehend. Right, and what I love is, is um, you know, I've grown up in the church and I would say, if you've grown up in the church or been in the church, you, you've heard this before, I'm sure you have. Christians are always really, really worried about keeping God relevant, right? There's always like, hey, hey, how are we gonna keep God relevant? And then like, how is God gonna be cool for the next generation? And what are, what are we going to do to keep the young people coming to church? Well, can I tell you something? I am almost positive that God is not in heaven right now worried uh, about his PR campaign. Like, I think God's okay with it. God is the creator of time and space and everything and the church has grown and thrived for thousands of years and it will continue to do so because God is supreme in existence. This whole thing is his. We don't need to worry about his street cred, amen? 
He is supreme in existence. Here's the second thing we see, is that he is supreme in title. He is supreme in title. Look at verse six again. He says, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. All right, so if you take notes in your Bible and if you underline things, can you just underline the word the in that phrase? Right, I see it three times. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. And do you think he's trying to make a point by using the same word three times? He, what he's saying is, is I'm the only one who gets to call myself this thing. He goes, I am the king of Israel. I'm not one of the kings. I'm not a king. I'm not a Lord. I'm not a God. I'm the king of Israel, the Lord, the Lord of hosts. He's saying, I am supreme in title. I am above and over and ruler over everything. God is saying, no one holds a greater name than me. No one holds a greater title than me. And that title belongs to God alone. And God has bestowed that same title to his son, Jesus Christ. In Philippians 2, 9 through 11, it says this. It says, therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, so here's my question. Why is God so concerned about his title? Right? Why does God go out of his way to say, I've given Jesus the name that is above every name? Well, here's why. Because the title tells so much about who you are, doesn't it? Like I was traveling with my wife and some friends a couple weeks ago and we were on a plane. And if you've ever been on a plane, you know how the spiel goes, right? Like you get on the plane and um, they go through that whole talk about how like, here's how you buckle a seatbelt in case you weren't sure how that works. And you know, um, here's how you put the oxygen on and um, all of the different things. And no one really pays attention. Everyone just puts their headphones in. Um, but then all of a sudden the pilot comes on. And the pilot's like, hey, I'm the pilot. I just want to let you know, this is what the weather conditions are. This is how long the flight's going to be. And when the pilot talks, he carries more weight because his title means that he is the one that's in charge. The pilot is the one that knows how to fly the plane. The pilot is the one responsible for the lives and safety of the passengers and the crew. The pilot carries the weight of that flight. So when the pilot talks, you pay attention. Titles carry a lot of weight. Men, do you know that there's a lot of weight to the title dad? That you've got a unique ability to mess up your kids like no one else can? There's a weight to that title. There's a weight to the title of doctor or teacher or engineer or pastor. They carry weight. And what God is saying is, is I am the king of kings and Lord of lords. No one shares this title. No one carries more weight than I do. Third thing we see is that God is supreme in creation. Supreme in creation. Look, jump down to verse 24. He says this, he says, thus says the Lord, your redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. And what he's doing here is, is he is now um, comparing himself to these false gods that, that were being worshiped and being served. And he says, listen, no, 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 no. It, I am the one who is supreme in creation. He says it right there. He says, I am the Lord who made all things. Everything was made by God himself. 
And then he goes from the general to the specific. He says, not only am I the creator of all things, but I'm the creator of you specifically. He says, I formed you from the womb. That God was intricately involved in every single one of our lives and creation. And that he stretched out the heaven and earth by himself. And what he's saying is, is the, these false gods that you believed were part of creation, it's not true. That's not how it went down. There wasn't a rock God and a, 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 a earth God and a sky God and a sea God. He knows it was just me. I was by myself. I did it all. There is one God. And this is so closely tied to the next thing we see, and it's this, that God is supreme in authority. God is supreme in authority. Look up at verse seven. God says, who is like me? Let him proclaim it, let him declare it and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. God is saying, there's no one else like me. Who, who is as strong as I am? Who is the authority that I have? Who can tell what is to come and what will happen? I am supreme in authority. And do me a favor, if you like to take notes, put a star next to this point. Here's why. Because it's this point right here in the Christian worldview that makes Christianity an offense. The thing that makes our faith offensive is the reality that God is the one who has ultimate and supreme authority. And this was offensive to the people Isaiah was writing to in Israel. This was offensive to the early church in the Roman Empire. And it is just as offensive today. Let me explain. You see, the Israelites, like I said, they were part of a pagan society. So here's what that means. Um, that means that everyone kind of served their own God and you could pick and choose what kind of God or what kind of group you were a part of. So let me use some people for an example. You know, John, you're, uh, say you're a craftsman, right? So I like to work with my hands. I'm a craftsman. I'm going to worship the God of steel. And that's the God that I'm gonna worship. I'm gonna to go to that temple. I'm gonna practice that God. That's the one that I'm going to be a part of. That's my crew. Scott Flickham, one of our elders, he's an accountant, right? He, he, he's a math guy. So he would worship the God of arithmetic. And you know his crew, they would go to the temple with their calculators and they would serve that God and they would you know do their thing and, and they would worship a different God. Um, Jeff, he's a, a doctor and uh, he would uh, you know, serve the God of the body because he, or the God of science. And that's what he would serve in worship. And kind of depending on how you were wired and what you would like, you could all serve your own God and everyone would get along as long as you just did your own thing. Okay, but what God is saying is, no, no, none of those gods are real. They're all false gods. They're false idols. There is one true God and he demands all authority. Right? If I say that, now I've offended the math God and I've offended the craftsman God and I've offended the God of science because I'm saying they're false. There is one true God. It was an offense to say that thing. Okay, think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Babylon. Right? What are they asked to do? They're asked to bow to Nebuchadnezzar and worship him as God. What did they say? They said, we can't do that, king because you're not God. There is one God and he is supreme in authority and you can throw us in the fire if you want to, but if we die today, it's not because you did anything, it's because a God allowed it and you're not God, bro. That's what they said. And they were tossed in a fire for it. It was an offense, right? Think about the early Christians in Rome, right? Why was the early church hated? It's because they refused to worship Caesar as God. 
Caesar is a man. There is one God and his, and his son is Jesus Christ. Salvation is only found through him and we will not bow to Caesar. So if you need to feed me to the lions, feed me to the lions. If you need to light me on fire and put me on a cross to light your messed up dinner parties, then so be it. But there is one God and he is ruler and he's supreme. That was the offense. That's why Christians went to their death because they said there is one God who reigns supreme. And by the way, this is the message of Christianity that's so offensive today. Here's what I mean. Most people aren't offended by the idea of sin and needing forgiveness. Do you know that? Like most people, if, if you ask them, like, hey, have you done things that are wrong? Do you have regrets? Would you like to receive forgiveness? They'd be like, yeah, totally, right? We know we're fallen. That, that's our lived experience. Most people don't have any issue with the idea of hell. Most people don't, like people might say they do, but I've never heard anyone be super upset that Hitler's in hell right now, have you? Right, we don't have the problem with evil people being punished for their sin. Now we think we shouldn't go to hell and we're good, like that's what most people think, so they have an issue with them going to hell or their loved ones going to hell, but the idea of hell isn't even that great an offense. And by the way, most people would say Jesus was a good guy, he was a good teacher, he did a lot of good things. What's the offense of Christianity? You see, we don't live in a pagan society where there's thousands of God, but church, look here, what we have done is we have demonically elevated ourselves and our feelings to the highest authority. We believe that we should be supreme in authority over our lives. So the offense of Christianity comes when you say that things like gender, and things like our sexuality and our bodies, we don't have ultimate authority over. Those are above our pay grade, that belongs to God. And we submit ourselves to him and we honor him with our lives and we follow what he says. Now I've created a massive offense, right? And listen, this isn't something just with our secular culture that creates an offense, it oftentimes creates an offense in the church. Like when I say, hey, God is supreme over how you spend your money, I can feel the air get sucked out of the room. Hey, Cal, you can talk to me about Jesus. Don't talk to me about my wallet. Hey, when God is supreme over your time and your relationships and your forgiveness, they're like, no, no, we wanna be in authority over these things. And if you look for this, you see this everywhere in society. No one should be able to tell you what to do. True happiness is found inside of you. You being true to yourself is all you need. Do what makes you feel happy. Only you have your truth. You see, we don't worship idols. We have demonically elevated ourselves to the place of God and we are battling with him for supreme authority. God says, who is like me? Who knows what's to come? Everything is his, and he sits in authority, and we're going to give an account someday. Look at verse 8. It says this, fear not, nor be afraid, for I have told you from old and declare it, you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Is there no rock? I know not any. Here's the fifth thing we see is that God is supreme in strength. Do you see him call himself the rock there? He goes, is there a rock like me? I don't know of any. And what he's saying is, is I am a stabilizing force. I am a rock. I am strong. I am unchanging. I am unwavering. You can anchor your life to me and you will be okay. It reminds me of the story that Jesus tells in Matthew 7, right? Where he says there's a wise man that builds his house on what? 
on the rock, right? A wise man builds his house on the rock and a foolish man builds his house on the sand and then a storm comes and there's waves and there's thunder and there's lightning and it's a big storm. And the guy who builds his house on the rock, it stands the test of the storm and it stays. And the guy who builds his house on the sand is washed away. And what Jesus is saying is, is if you build your foundation on me, you will stand the storms of life. Well, church, can I ask you a question? We've all gone through a storm the last 18 months. Have you lived your life like your foundations are built on a rock? Has your heart and attitude been one that's been marked by peace and trust and faith and joy in the middle of times that are scary and frustrating and it feels like things are being taken away from us? Have you been a person who's been marked by the stability of God or have you been marked by your house being built on the sand and it's been panic and it's been fear and it's been terror and it's been running around like a chicken with your head cut off because everything's changing and we don't like it and we don't know what to do. Man, does our world need right now people who can say, hey, I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know who holds tomorrow, right? And I know that God is faithful and he's in control and he gives me stability and joy and peace when everything seems out of control. Have we had that testimony? Have you had that testimony in this storm? All right, just a few more. Look at verse nine. He says this. He says, all who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know, and they, uh, that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and these craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. So what God does now is, is he goes on the offensive against idolatry. And what we see is, is that God is supreme in shaming idolatry. God is supreme in shaming idolatry. And don't miss the fact here that in a passage where God is talking about himself, the thing that God says is his ultimate enemy is idolatry. He says, this is the thing that I hate. This is the thing that I'm against. And I will put those who worship idols and make idols to shame. And then look at verse 13. He begins to actually make fun of the idols. He says this, he says, the carpenter stretches a line and he marks out with a pencil and he shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man and with the beauty of man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree and an oak and lets it grow strong amongst the trees of the forest and he plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for man and he takes part of it and with it he warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread and he also makes a God and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. All right, what God's saying is, he goes, listen, this whole idolatry thing is stupid. He goes, you cut a tree down, you measure it out, with half of the tree, you make firewood for yourself. With another half of the tree, you, or another quarter of the tree, you make bread. And with the last quarter, what you do is, is you carve out an image. You cut the tree down, you design the idol, you carve the idol, you place the idol in the ground, and then you worship it like it's a God and give thanks for it. He's like, why would you worship something that you made? He, he's saying to worship a created thing that you made rather than the creator who made the tree who gave the water to nourish it, who caused it to grow strong. You're worshiping the created rather than the creator and you look like a fool. That's what God is saying. And church, listen, 
Idolatry is elevating any created thing to the level of God itself. So anything in our life that would compete for our ultimate worship, our ultimate joy, our ultimate satisfaction, our ultimate identity, our ultimate security, anything that we look to outside of God to fulfill what only God can fulfill is idolatry. And listen, that is your greatest threat to your walk with Christ. It's idols. Kent Hughes, a theologian and pastor says this. He says, the central theological principle of the Bible is the rejection of idolatry. Think about it. If there is only one God, and we are not experiencing his reviving fullness, there is a reason. And the reason is idols are clogging the inflow of his refreshment. The exclusive reality of God forces the question of idolatry. We need to think about this because our world is crowded with idols. Okay, here's what he's saying. Um, Let's be honest in church for a moment. Has any of you ever come to church and it's like, man, I want to worship and I want to engage, but I just feel distracted and far from God. You ever felt that where it's like, man, my walk with the Lord is just stale and something's off. Can I help you? Whatever is going on in your heart, it has to do with idolatry. Every time I have felt like that, when I've prayed through it, when I've looked at my heart, there has been something else that I have been elevating to a level that it should not be elevated to. And my affections and my worship have been drifting towards something else. So when you feel that, man, I'm in a desert or or God feels distant, it's not that God has gone anywhere. It's that our uh, hearts are being clogged with idolatry. God is saying, I will not compete with your idols because I will shame all idolatry. Okay, here's the seventh one. And this one's so cool. We see that God is supreme in redemption. God is supreme in redemption. Look at verse 21. He says this, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you, you are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me for I have redeemed you. I love this. You may have to remember what's going on. God is talking to a people who've grown weary of him. They don't want him anymore. They want their pagan idols. And God says, even though you have turned from me, I will not forget you and I will redeem you. And I have blotted out your sins like the mist. Return to me because I am here and I love you and I will redeem you. There is something woven into the heart of God that is a grace and a love and a redemption for his creation that is only supernatural because it doesn't make any sense to me. That God can look at a rebellious people and say, no, I love you, I won't forget you, I will remove your transgressions and I will redeem you. And church, look here, isn't that all of our story? Like don't all of us stand before God as enemies? that we were born into this earth into sin, that we have turned to our own way, that we often, often, often elevate ourselves to the level of God. And we say, no, I know best. I'm going to reign supreme over my life. God, thanks, but no thanks. And yet what does God do? He gives himself to us. And he gave Jesus to die as a sacrifice for our sins so that we may be made right with God. This is our story. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5 says this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, that even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. And this is a grace we receive every day because again, let's be honest, how many times this week have you elevated yourself to the level of God in your life? 
How many times this week have you allowed your attitudes and your emotions and your thoughts to revolve primarily around you and not on the Lord? It's a daily occurrence, and yet God continues to be patient. He continues to come alongside us. He continues to forgive. He continues to restore. He continues to grow us and sanctify us and give us his spirit freely. One of the foundations of a Christian worldview is that we are not the hero, but God is. Amen? All right, do me a favor. Turn to your neighbor and tell him you're not the hero. Unless you're sitting next to my wife, then you can tell her she's the hero for me. I would appreciate that. She's in here somewhere. We're not the hero. That our salvation is not tied to our greatness or our effort or our faithfulness. It's tied to the mercy and grace of God. Okay, here's the eighth thing we see. It's this, is that God is supreme in control. God is supreme in control. And uh, look at verse 28. Look how this chapter ends. This is so cool. He says, and who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. All right, so all of a sudden to end this chapter out of nowhere, God drops this guy's name Cyrus. And he starts talking about this guy Cyrus. And it's like, all right, who's he talking about? Who is Cyrus? And God says, Cyrus is gonna be my shepherd and I'm going to accomplish my purposes through him. Well, you have to understand the history of what's going on to understand how cool this passage is. This is like one of the top five chill bump moments in scripture for me. Okay, so here's what's going on. Israel is about to fall captive to the Assyrians and they're gonna be exiled into Babylon. That's where Daniel's gonna hang out his whole life. That's where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go. Israel's gonna fall. They're gonna be taken captive by the Assyrians and they're gonna be exiled there for 70 years. But what's going to happen is, is just like the Assyrians, another world power is going to form and they're called the Persians. And their armies are even stronger than the Assyrians. They start taking the land that Assyria had and eventually they will overthrow Babylon and they will set the stage to allow Israel to return to Jerusalem. Anyone wanna take a guess at what the leader of the Persian army, what his name was? It was Cyrus. See what God's doing? God is calling out by name the man that would overthrow the Assyrians and set the stage for Israel returning a hundred years before it happened. Like, come on, that's gotta give like some of you goosebumps in here, right? Like, isn't that cool? And it's like, how, how could Isaiah know that? Well, it wasn't Isaiah speaking, it was God and God is supreme in control, church. So here's what that means. We don't need to be afraid that God is sovereign and he is working and we can live with a confidence that he is accomplishing his purposes even in the midst of the pandemic and the storms of our life. Like again, I don't know what's gonna happen next. Like there could be a watermelon variant that pops up and a third of the world could turn into watermelons for all I know at this point. Like nothing would surprise me seemingly. But here's what I know, God's not nervous in heaven. God's not worried. He is in control and he is going to use all of this to accomplish his purposes, which is that he would be glorified on earth. He is supreme in control. So if God is truly supreme in existence and in title and in creation and in authority and in strength over idols and redemption and control, then what I wanna argue is, is there's only two reasonable responses to this God. How do we respond to a God like this? There's only two reasonable ways. Here's the first. The first is our our response of worship. 
right? If this is really who God is, and this is what the Christian worldview is, that we as Christians believe that God is who he says he is, then we have only one way that we can respond, and that is through a life of worship. I've been reading a book over sabbatical. It's written by Francis Chan, and he tells a story that I wanna share with you because I think it's so pertinent. He says, um, put yourself in this story quick. Imagine you leave here and you're walking down downtown Spring Lake or Grand Haven and you're with your best friend. All right, can you picture that? Sunny day, nice outside, you're on a walk with your best friend and all of a sudden you and your best friend are viciously attacked and your body is broken, you're beaten, there's no one there to help you, you're at the point of death, you're bleeding out on the side of the street. Good picture, huh? Um, Now imagine in that moment a stranger shows up and he miraculously heals all of your injuries. And then he hands you and your friend a billion dollars and walks away. Okay, imagine the look that you would give your best friend in that moment after that happened. Imagine the look of what just happened to us. Like, did that just happen? I can't believe we were dead and now we're alive and we've been given more than we could ever dream. And what Francis Chan says is that's the look that every follower of Jesus Christ should give each other every time we see one another. Like, oh my goodness, what has God done for us? How has he saved us? How has he redeemed us? How has he called us to himself? Can you believe that God gave his only son to be the sacrifice for our sin because he loves us and he has given us his spirit and he's given us this world to enjoy and a family and his word and he loves us and he's near to us when we're brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit and he walks with us and we have access to God. How in that reality can we do anything but worship his name? And when you think of worship, I wanna think in two specific ways. The first way I wanna think of is corporate worship when we gather together. So on a Sunday when we gather together, we start our services with worship. We gather together and we sing praises to Jesus. And here's what I would say about that. Do you know that our corporate worship is very, very much so a mirror into our heart? That if we come to church and if we're not excited about the Lord, and if we're going through the motions and if we're not engaged in worship, that most likely that means that that is the same thing that's happening in our lives every single day. Now hear me, can people fake it? Absolutely. Can you be far from the Lord and raise your hands in worship and no one to say amen and go through all the motions? Totally, that, that is a problem for some of you. But I would say in Dutch frozen chosen West Michigan, You laugh because it's true. (laughs) The bigger issue we have is that we have settled for a non-emotive, stale, lifeless, going through the motions worship experience, and we have somehow become comfortable with that, and it's wrong. And here's the thing, I know it's in you because I could hear the shouts of joy from my house when Ohio State lost yesterday afternoon, right? Like, it's in there, but yet we settle for something less at church. So here's all I'm gonna say about that. If you are comfortable with a stale, lifeless worship service, you're just not gonna be comfortable at this church long-term. Because when we gather together, we're gonna lift high the name of Jesus in worship and we're going to sing a new song and it's gonna be loud and it's gonna be emotive and it's gonna be joyful because God is supreme and he demands it and he deserves it, amen? Then the other way I want you to think of worship is how is your private worship life going? And what I mean by that is, is when you wake up in the morning, Is your heart's preset a heart of worship? Is the way you standardly operate, is it, man, God, you've given me so much. 
And here's another day that's a gift. The morning, the coolness of the air that we're starting to feel in the morning, the changing of the colors, my job, my family, who's driving me crazy right now, they're all a gift. And I just wanna worship you because you are good and you've continued to be faithful. And I know you're gonna be faithful today. Is that how our hearts start when we wake up every day or are we quick to grumble and complain and think about everything in our life that's deficient? Do we not even think about God at all? Man, I think 80% of the problems in our life would be solved if we had the discipline to spend 10 minutes when we wake up just worshiping God and thanking him for who he is. How, how are you, how's it going this week, right? We're back in the routine, school's back in session. We're kind of entering into fall. Where is your heart? Are you building a routine of worship? And then here's the second other reasonable response. It's this, it's surrender. It can only be a heart of surrender. In church, what I would say is, um, I need you to understand this. When we are saved, we start a process of sanctification. That means as we are with Jesus longer, we grow more in Christ. We know more about him. We have more victory over sin. That's a process. None of us are perfect. We all fall short. We all sin. We all still have this sin nature in us and are weakened by the flesh. And I would never say that anyone in here should be perfect in victory over sin because it's not biblical. But here's what I will tell you is biblical. It's this. It's that the Bible does not know a Christian whose heart is not surrendered to God. The Bible does not know a Christian who does not have the desire to surrender every aspect of his life over to God. Or maybe the, the way we talk about it now is the Bible does not know of a lukewarm Christian. The Bible doesn't know of a Christian who's comfortable saying, I'm gonna keep God in this box, but I'm gonna have control and authority over my own life because I know best. And if you don't believe me, listen to Jesus in Revelation 3. He's speaking to a church. He says this. He says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich and I prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Okay, so just to be clear, how does Jesus see the lukewarm Christian? He sees them as wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. What he's saying is, is they're not saved. So there has to be something in the life of a Christian that says, God, you are God and I am not. And even though I'm going to fall and I'm not perfect, I want you to have authority over everything in my life. God, my family, they are yours. Let me love them and honor you and how I lead them and care for them and love them and raise my kids because they're yours. God, the people that I work with, help me be surrendered at work today. Help me to, to be someone who gives life and who brings joy. Help me to have a witness for you. Help me to, to love the people that I work with that are difficult to love. Hey, God, in the areas of conflict in my life, help me to be quick to forgive. Help me to be a peacemaker. Help me to honor you and serve you in the relationships that are difficult because my heart is surrendered to you. God, my time and my money and my effort and my energy, I am laying all of those before you because you are supreme in everything and you are God. So here's what I need to do as we close, church. I just need to ask you a simple question but it's really the central question of all of scripture and of all of life. It's this, who is your heart this morning? Who has your heart? 
And if you would, if you would trust me to, to uh, allow you to listen to me right now, if you could take your focus, we've just heard a lot of amazing things about God, and I just want to a moment change the topic from God to your heart. And I want you to be honest with yourself. As you come into church today, is your life defined by one of worship and surrender or does something else have your heart? Do me a favor, bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. I'm gonna have the lights go down and I just wanna take a moment to sit in this question and reflect. Maybe you're here. I think a lot of us are probably like this and you feel like something is clogging your relationship with the Lord and he feels distant and um, you don't want it to be that way. I would ask if you're feeling that at all, would you pray right now and ask the Lord, hey, reveal idols in my life that are taking my worship and affection away from you. God, would you help me prioritize those things rightly? And may I live a life of worship and surrender to you. He will answer that prayer and he will draw near. Maybe you're here and you're like, you know what? My life hasn't been marked by worship and surrender. Would you pray right now and repent of that and say, God, would you help me? Would you help me realign my life? Would you help me prioritize what is reality that you are God and ruler and supreme over all? And maybe you're here and you just need to thank the Lord right now for his grace and mercy and patience in a hard, difficult season. You need to be here and you need to pray, God, be my rock. I have fears and I have concerns and I have worries that are keeping me up at night and are um, causing me to lose joy. God, would you restore to me the joy of my salvation? Would you allow me to remember that you are in control and you are good and you are sovereign in control? Where is your heart? Because I'm really excited about this series. I'm excited about where we're going as a church. But if we don't get our hearts right before the Lord right now, we're gonna be left behind and not get what God has for us. Would we be so humble as to take an honest moment with the Lord? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for um, this church. Thank you for this morning. Thank you that we can worship and gather together in your name. And God, I just pray right now that you would move in our hearts, that we would be marked by surrender and worship to you. You are so good, you are so faithful, you are supreme in all things. And God, I just feel right now this overwhelming sense of I cannot rightly describe how awesome you are, but God, you've given us your spirit and your spirit will confirm all of those things in our heart. So we love you and we trust you, would you help us? It's in your son's name we pray, amen.